All right, well, good afternoon. It's good to be with you again as we have this second opportunity to gather together um, to look at the things which we have historically uh, pertaining to our faith, uh, particularly looking at the confession this evening as we continue in our study of that. If you find the blue Trinity hymnal in front of you and turn to page 672, that will take you to the chapter of the confession that we will be reading and studying this afternoon. The title of chapter three in the confession is God's decree, and I want to say at the onset, brothers and sisters, we tread upon deep waters as we come to this topic. God's decree for us um, is a blessing. Uh, it is in some way too, too deep and mysterious for us to know but the endeavor for us to rest and comfort, have comfort in that uh, is nonetheless a good endeavor for us to see through the scriptures and through our historic confession. And so I, I want to encourage us to read the confession and particularly um, the areas where we might find most difficulty, open our hearts and our minds and the scriptures that we might see wonderful things that God has intended for us in the affirmation of those chapters. Amen. All right, so we'll begin. I'm going to open us in prayer, and then uh, we will read the first paragraph. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is good that we as your people gather together on this day where you bestow blessings and goodness toward us. We heard this morning, as Brother Tyler brought your word to us that you lavish good things upon us. And Father, we are here to add our hearty amens to the things that we have received from you, particularly that of the knowledge of yourself, the knowledge of your Son, the knowledge of your Spirit, which you have imparted to us that we may know these things for certain. We ask that you be with us this afternoon. Uh, in our study of the confession, that these things would not just increase our head knowledge, but that they would find their way rooted deep in our hearts as we may have never asked questions such as we will hear. But even greater yet, we will receive answers to questions which we may have only once thought to ask. We thank you that you are the God who gives, you are the God who comforts, you are the God who has made a way for us to know you through your Son. We thank you for your Spirit, which abiding in us, convicts us, leads us in the way that we should go for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So on page 672, you'll find chapter 3, paragraph 1. This particular session this afternoon is going to focus on paragraph one with some general comments on the entirety of the chapter. Uh, and we'll also see some other areas within the confession that will help us to understand God's decree. So let me read the paragraph for us in chapter three if you're following along. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty 
or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. This chapter in the Confession brings us to the reality of God's decree. The description of God's decree comes to us in general and universal terms in the first two paragraphs. These bring to us the reality of God's decree generally, but also show the universality that is the extent of the decree. Paragraph 3 then lays forth the specific decree pertaining to eternal life in Christ Jesus. Paragraphs 4 through 7 only serve to get, add more detail to that decree. Sam Waldron, in his description of this entire chapter, gives us a great illustration. We can consider the first two chapters, our first two paragraphs, and the third paragraph as concentric circles. The first two serving as a larger circle, paragraph three serving as a more specific uh, circle in the center where it is focused specifically upon predestination unto life. But what does decree mean? God's decree and his eternal purpose is his eternal purpose and determination as to what will come to pass. Because God is wise, he, is in, he isn't enthroned in the heavens, anxiously waiting to see what we do so that he can then respond. He isn't learning as things are going along and responding or recalculating his plan according to what we do. If you want to think of an analogy that might be helpful, planners and designers uh, often draw out their design and the boundaries of what they're going to create on a piece of paper. It's often called a blueprint. And then in time and space, those things start to come together as they make that blueprint come alive in reality. And that's how we should think of God's decree and the execution of his decree. God's providence, his wise government of the world, is his execution in reality of his eternal decree. I would like to point out the fact that God's decree being mentioned so early on in the confession shows the God-centeredness that the framers had concerning this topic. In fact, if I could exercise my spiritual gift of pointing out the painfully obvious, God's decree is in chapter 3, which follows chapter 2, which follows chapter 1. I say that because this chapter follows the chapter that tells us about the God who is in Holy Trinity. It tells us about the living and true, incomprehensible, immortal, eternal, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, absolute Lord God. In Confession chapter 2, we read that there, in light of his nature and his being, this God works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. This sets the scene for the decree. Everything that has or everything that will happen in history is always about God and his glory. And how do we come to know this God of glory? How do we come to know of this decree of his? Well, from what the scriptures tell us in chapter 1 of the 
the infallible and sufficient Holy Scriptures. Each chapter is layered upon the previous, adding to the affirmations that we know exist in the Scriptures. And I find this to be the way the entire confession is laid out as our framers hand it down to us through time. It is the faithfulness of these truths and the doctrine of God's decree that has offered the church great comfort in times of tribulation, much civil unrest in the world. Whatsoever comes to pass flows from God's perfect and all-wise decree. And the nature of His decree flows from who He is. Because God is independent... His decree does not depend on anything outside of himself. Since God is unchangeable, his decree is sure and unchangeable. So let's consider some of these things as we look at the language of chapter 1. First of all, God's decree is universal and effectual. If I could truncate real quick to say that God has decreed all things whatsoever to come to pass. We could full stop and go home right there. That tells us enough about God and His decree. He has decreed all things whatsoever come to pass. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that happens in this world that is not according to that wise decree. And as Christians, we ought not shy away from making that statement. Did God plan this thing to happen? Yes, God has decreed all things. That's not a dis- and I'm going to tell you that this is not a distinctly reformed statement. This is a Christian statement that has been made throughout millennia. Are good things decreed? Yes. Is sin decreed? Yes. Is the fall something that God decreed? The answer is a resounding yes. If you have your hymnal open, look over to chapter 5, paragraph 4 of the Confession. And you will find the words, That his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall. You flip over to chapter 6, paragraph 1. You will find there under the fall of man that God was pleased according to his will and his holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it, that is, the transgression of Adam, to his own glory. God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. This demonstrates the way in which God decrees good and evil are often different. We will say more about that in a minute. But let's turn to some texts, first of all. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We'll look at Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11. 
And here the scripture reads, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So God has a purpose for all things, and he works them according to the counsel of himself. He does not consider men. He does not entertain the opinion of princes. He is not beholden to the desires of angels. God himself decrees according to his own counsel. And this is not just a New Testament idea. If we turn to Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10. Most of us have probably read or memorized this text at some point. Um, Here the prophet Isaiah recording for us the word of God pertaining to himself. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Notice verse 10. It does not say that God knows all things from the beginning. It says that God has declared all things. He has declared from the end. He has declared the end from the beginning. God does not have to know things will happen because he has declared them to happen. Is the decree of God thwarted by the sinful acts of the world? No, because it says, I will do all my pleasure. Does God need to reroute like our GPS when we make the wrong turn and it starts to tell you over and over again, make a left turn, rerouting, recalculating, turn left, make a U-turn where possible, God is not directed in such a way. All things serve the good pleasure of God because they are decreed by Him in His good pleasure. And His good pleasure is in no way limited by the actions of creatures. If you turn with me to Psalm 119. It's a big one, so you'll have to go to verse 89. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. You see, God's decree is over every detail in creation and providence. And there are seven points that I'd like us to look at today, and they're not unique to me. Uh, These have long been um, accounted for by men far wiser than I. 
But I'm going to borrow them or steal them, as any good self-respecting preacher would do. And I'm going to present them to you uh, here as helpful ways for us to discern the different ways in which God's decree plays out in creation. Number one, he decrees things we consider to be chance. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. Every roll of the dice is, that, is, is going to account and come to the end according to God's decree. Number two, he decrees the details of our lives. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God's decree extends to the very details of the number of hairs upon your head. Number three, he decrees the affairs of nations. 2 Kings 5.1 Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord has given victory to Syria. There are many places we find where God is told to, said to raise up nations, raise up kings, and to take them down. Number four, he decrees the free actions of humans. We are all familiar with the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 20. But as for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as to this day to save many people alive. God decrees the sinful actions of human beings. Number six, good and evil events are in the decree of God. Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all of these things. And finally, number seven, God's decree details the final destruction of the wicked. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. There is no area to which God's decree does not extend. It is universal. Its extent encompasses all things whatsoever. And with that, we will say God's decree is good. But we do recognize that the reality of the statement that God decrees or works all things whatsoever come to pass raises some objections. We'll walk through three of these objections. Immediately, number one, the question arises, if God decrees all of these things, many of which are evil, does that not make God the author of sin? And here is where we need to make a very certain distinction. God can decree evil without himself being evil or having fellowship with those therein. Remember, in, in paragraph 1, we have these words in the confession, Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Chapter 5 and verse 4, we've seen 
there once, but we'll see it again. Another area that says his determinate counsel extends itself to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceed only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Let me say at this point that there is a tension within the truths, the glorious truths that, God's dec- that God decrees sin and yet is not the author of it. The Scriptures teach both and the confession affirms both, but what we do not have is a very clean conclusion from the confession. Instead, what we find is that the confession speaks to the reality of both of these truths. God decrees sin yet is not the author of it, it speaks to these realities but doesn't water down one truth over the other. And we need to remember that as we weigh through some of these things, as we read through Scriptures, as we think in how God deals with us in our lives and how we interpret the culture around us, we want to make sure that we understand that God is in control of all things because He has decreed them to come to pass. I remember um, some years ago, we had, um, you might remember, there was a a great earthquake and a tsunami that hit Indonesia, and many lives were lost. I remember reading an article some months later of some people who were really up in arms, and the, the, the great refrain was, if there was a God, why didn't He do something about this? And from another side, there was the, there was the refrain, I know there's a God, but if only he would have known this was going to happen, he could have done something about it. Do you see the problem with those two points? They acknowledge a being who has no control over anything. We'll get into some application points a little later, which will bring great comfort to refute that way of thinking in the life of the Christian, but we'll go on. So God can decree that sin certainly be without Him being the author or the doer or approver of sin. And we confess this because the Bible tells us this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. That's a tension between those two things. Genesis 15 verse 20, which we've already read, but we see that point of that text we want to focus on is that God meant the evil acts of Joseph's brothers for good. We remember Confession 6.1 concerning the fall, which says, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having proposed to order it being the fall to his own glory. The language here is of permission. And it does not mean without divine intention. God permitted with divine intention. It's not like God was up there seeing something he didn't expect happen and think, well, I'm going to go ahead and work that into my plan somehow. In fact, chapter 5 and verse 4 says he decreed sin not by a bare permission. What does that mean? Well, this is the Arminian view that God decrees a thing to be so because He simply foreknows it will be. The language permit 
is intended to differentiate between the different ways in which God decrees good and evil. God's decree renders both good and evil equally certain, but the confession uses the language of permission to stress that God does not actively do evil. He decrees sin in a way in which he is not the author. In fact, you can underscore this. We've said it several times. The author of sin is the person committing the sin. This is why the language in our chapter 3, paragraph 1, goes on to say, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. The second objection is one that is similar. People will say, well, if God has decreed all things, including the acts of men, then humans are aren't really free in any sense. But this is where distinguishing these things apart is necessary. We must not define God's decree in a way that diminishes human responsibility. We must not diminish God's decree, which separates that humans act upon choice, because we do. So the confession says that violence is not offered or done to the will of the creature. What does that mean? Well, if you look in your your Trinity hymnal at chapter 9 of the confession on free will, and this will get explained more as we make our way through the confession, I'll just point out one area in paragraph 1. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the confession, you will find that there are scriptural texts in every paragraph. Um, A little word of warning, some of them are proof texts, but that's not the intention of those texts to be there. There is the intention that understanding where they've placed a, a scriptural marker carries with it the context to that point. Um, So if you're looking for an absolutely fresh and clean Uh, proof text out of those scriptural references, you might want to just grab a little more context around them to find out what they're using that scripture for. Chapter 9, paragraph 1. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Now, I know that's a lot, but we want to focus on the word forced. It's very similar to the word violence used in our text. If God decreed men's actions in such a way that they were compelled in an irresistible sense to do it, even though they willed to do otherwise, then their actions would not be free. Let me give you an example. If everything within me willed to do a thing, That was my desire. I was going to do a thing, whatever it is. But some outside force acted upon me against my desire and made me do something else, then my freedom is infringed upon. My desire was to do one thing, but an outside force acted against my desire to do the thing and caused me to do something else. I'm not free. But if my actions flow from what I desire to do and what I choose to do, I do freely, 
of my own desire, then I am free. Does that make sense? Did I confuse everybody? Okay, let me give you another example. If my desire is to get up and punch Juan in the nose, that's my desire, that's the thing I want to do. I really want to do that, Juan. But something outside of me prevents me from doing what I desire to do. My choice is there, but my, my will is not free. I would not want to punch you in the nose, brother. However, if I did, <laughs> and nothing acted upon me, I did so freely. I am free in my will to do so. God does not force men to act according to their nature. They just act according to their nature. That's the freedom that they have. God decrees and makes certain that the choices and actions of men, not causing any violence against their will, but in a way that accords and works through their wills, God uses certain actions of men to bring about His decree. Chapter 5 on divine providence will open this up more regarding God as the first cause and the creature as a second cause. In every human action, God is the first cause by way of decree. But the human is the second cause. Can you think of any scriptures that maybe come to mind that illustrate this very clearly? I'll give you a couple examples just for the sake of time. Second Samuel, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but... 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1, you might remember this is where David takes a census. And we are told that, again, the anger of the Lord, underline that part in your mind, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Who, according to this text, caused David to number the people. The Lord, right? Scriptures clearly say that. But if we look at the same event spoken about in 1 Chronicles 21.1, we read this. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Well, now hold on a second. Which is it? Did the Lord move David or did Satan? The answer is yes. In the one incident, the Bible gives us a remarkable insight in this one incident of three influences that combine in a way to make one single action. God, in order to bring about his purpose in punishing Israel, worked through Satan to incite David to sin. And yet, the scripture doesn't retort and say, man, God, why did you... Make poor David and Satan do, those, do that thing. In fact, we know that David later says that I have sinned greatly. So he owns the sin in the thing that he did by numbering Israel. The same could be said of Satan. One more text that illustrates this idea that God's decree will be what will be using the cruel intentions, choices, and will of men. Acts 2.23 we read there that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God's definite plan or his decree was rendering Christ's death certain. In God's foreknowledge, it was done. In his decree, it is complete. However, lawless men crucified and killed the Lord of glory. They performed the lawless deed. So we see both God's decree and human freedom and responsibility are bound up together in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We'll look at a third objection. So the first one is, if God decrees all things, does that make him the author of evil? The author of sin, I mean. The second objection was, People aren't free if God decrees all things. The third objection to God's exhaustive decree is that people might conclude that their actions then don't matter. In fact, some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, if all of this is true, then whatever I do doesn't matter. That's a fatalistic perspective. It is true that what God has decreed will be the matter. His decree is unchangeable because he is unchangeable. But it will come to pass because of the means by which it comes to pass. He has appointed not only the ends of a thing, but the means by which these ends are connected. He has decreed the end that will happen, but he also decrees the ways by which the end will come about. Again, paragraph 6, or chapter 6, we'll open this up a little more. Paragraph 1, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, that is, that's the thing that's going to happen. God's elect will be in glory. That will not change. So he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. And it goes on to list the means by which God's elect will be in glory. For instance, for all of those who God decreed to save, he decreed to save them through Jesus Christ. Right? You have two things there, both decree and means. So Christ had to come once God had freely chose to save sinners through Christ. This means that if we think in terms of the fall in the beginning... Jesus wasn't plan B to the fall. God had intended and decreed the fall so that he would get the greatest glory through the suffering and glorification of his son. Full stop. God decreed that all those who would be saved through Jesus Christ would ordinarily be saved through the hearing about Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel. That is the means. And so we don't just respond to God's decree and say, well, God is going to get his elect with or without evangelism. That's fatalist. That's a fatalism point of view. But we do say, rather this, God has appointed evangelism as the means of drawing his people, and so I'm going to share Christ. Amen? That's the means that God has decreed. All right, two quick points of application. Number one, 
God's decree is a great comfort for the Christian. What do we do with this knowledge that we have just heard from the confession? What do we do with the idea that God has decreed all things whatsoever come to pass? What do we do with the idea that God is both the decreer of good and evil, but not the author of sin? Well, for the Christian, this is a great comfort. How good is it for us to know that whatever happens to us, whatever happens to our brothers and sisters around us, whatever happens in the world in which we are passing through is happening according to the divine wisdom and goodness, not merely by chance, but from a God who is all-wise and good. Christians today object to the idea of an exhaustive sovereign decree of all things, but if God has not planned and detailed all the events to occur as they have, who or what has? Is it fate? Beloved, is it more comforting for you to believe that some impersonal force guides the good and tragic seasons of our lives or to believe and know for certain that in His goodness and faithfulness, God decrees all things which hold you. Is that better than the chance to believe that all these things happen by happenstance? Of course. This gives hope and confidence and comfort. The reality that our trials and our struggles will come And while standing in the midst of those trials, God promises His presence with us. That is in itself enough to cast out all despair. Because we are assured that He intends these things for our good. 1 Peter 4.13, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. I know it sometimes can sound cliche in our time to say, but it's true. Our good and faithful God sends the storm while at the same time promising his presence to us while working that out for his intended good purpose. The good and all-wise God has seen fit to bring it about for His holy and good ends. God may not reveal to us all of the reasons why He has done this, but we must trust, dear brothers and sisters, that though He doesn't reveal it to us, He is working all things together for those who love Him. Our second point of application. God's decree should not bring about passivity in our action, but rather it should be a charge for our steadfastness and hope. God's decree of all things should not conclude in us a fatalistic doctrine which drives us to despair and inactivity. Fatalism breeds passivity. And passivity is a sin, and it leads to despair for the future. And those who hold to this false notion have said the doctrine of the decree 
in some senses, is unworthy of Christian theology. Well, Scripture and our confession say otherwise. God's decree establishes a meaningful context by which we as humans, in our actions, find hope in the future. In fact, God's good intention in His decree is the only means by which we may sing hymns which contain the words uh, such as the one we sung this morning, or though the world seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Our good and all-wise God rules and governs while His Word is established in the heavens. Because God's decree does not dissolve the link between wise diligence and reward, we need to see that it also does not dissolve the link between foolish disobedience and sorrow. There is compatibilism between God's decree and the human responsibility. There is compatibilism between God's decree and our foolish actions, which will bring despair. Fatalism says, whether I act wisely or foolish, righteously or unrighteous, the result will be the same because what will be, will be. But the divine decree establishes the idea that what a man sows, he will also reap otherwise known as the law of the harvest. And he will reap what he sows because it is the wise God who has ordained those connections. Because it is God who decrees both the ends and the means by which the ends come to pass. The same God who knows the very number of our days and has numbered every hair upon our heads also gave us the responsibility to strive, to persevere, and to preserve our lives by the means that He has provided while we submit to His good will. We do not see the number of our days as fixed with futility. Rather, we with Calvin should say, if we neglect those means God has given for the preservation of our lives, our foolishness may be the means of our destruction. So it is God's decree which establishes and gives meaning to our choices rather than making them meaningless. God's decree should encourage us to follow after His will, not encourage negligence. We can see this uh, for one biblical example. You will remember when Paul was on the ship and it became cast by the wind and, uh, and there there was uh, the idea they were going to wreck. And Paul is told by an angel, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Acts chapter 27, verse 24. That's the revelation of God and his, his infallible decree. Paul, you must appear before Caesar. Notice at that point, the crew didn't say, well, let's throw caution to the wind. We know we're going to make it safely. Rather, what did they do? They cast all of the cargo overboard, which was weighting the ship down. And when the sailors tried to abandon ship, Paul tells them, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You see, Paul took the means of self-preservation to bring about the deliverance God had promised. He did not tempt God and go carelessly. The same thing can also be said about our prayers, and often we find This idea of God's decree may lead to the question, well, then why pray? If God has decreed the ends already, why pray? 
Well, the same thing applies. Because God has not only decreed the ends, He has also decreed that you should pray. We approach God's decree not from the outside, but we as Christians approach God's decree from the inside, knowing that God has decreed even our prayers. Therefore, God is able to answer our prayers as part of His wise, integrated plan for all things. Our prayers are sometimes something God has decreed, or all times has something God has decreed, and therefore our prayers have meaning. God has revealed little of His decree to us because we, not, we should not be focused upon the, the decree itself, but rather we should focus upon the promises and our duties that He has called us to do. Romans, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So rather than obsessing over what the future may bring, those things which are not revealed to us, we can trust that to the Lord. We may not know His decree, but we do know the decree in God, and He is faithful, worthy, and true. Well, beloved, we, we come to the end of our examination of chapter 3, paragraph 1 of the Confession. Uh, let me close us in prayer, and if anyone has any questions, we'll try to muscle through those. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for your word, without which we would not know you and would be standing here condemned today. But because you have revealed yourself to us and your Son and his perfect work of redemption, completed in him, applied by your Spirit, we know and have hope for the future. We thank you for that. We ask that you be with us as we go from here, even as we begin to sing, receive our worship as you are worthy of all worship. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're still holding that Trinity hymnal, would you please rise with me and turn to number 94. I have a mic. (laughs) Hymn 94, whatever my God ordains is right.
questions. <laughs> Considering these things, as I said in the beginning, these, these are deep waters that we tread. God's decree is not totally hidden from us, but the outcome or the purpose of his decree is also not always revealed to us. But the two things working together give us comfort in knowing that there is a decreeing God in which we can know. And so I, I don't know if we've even thought about these things before. I know that the confession often spurns, spurs us on to thinking deeper about the affirmed truths of Scripture. Um, and so I, I ask that as we think these things through, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say that, and I'm going to say that, by the way. All right, any questions concerning any of the things that we talked about? Any comments or... Anything? If Kyle's texting you guys, don't ask any of his questions. Juan, did you have a question? You know you wanted to ask why I want to punch you in the nose. No questions? I have questions. <laughs> um, no, in, there's no questions? Not one. Aaron, you don't have a single thought or question? Let's hear them. Come on. Let us watch that formation happen. Gary? Usually Brittany has a good question. I have a hit list of names. I'll go through you all. Okay, here's a question. Uh, my question is, what's the definition of decree? What is the definition of decree? That's a good question. Uh, we, we covered that a little bit in the beginning. Um, certainly we know that God's decree is what he has established to happen. Um, and all things that he has established to happen from before the foundation of the world in time and space are the things that will happen. Um, that is God's decree. His establishing the things that will happen. And they do happen. I don't know if that's good enough, but I think that's where we land in our definition. That was, that was a good question. Thank you. So if we're, if we're talking with uh, another professing Christian and we're kind of going over these truths about God's decree and his sovereignty and his providence... And the uh, Christian that we're speaking to, um, the God that they seem to believe in is more leaning towards open theism, right? That, that well, God didn't, God didn't decree the death of your child. He saw that it would happen, but he, he certainly didn't decree it. I mean, are these, are these things that when we're speaking with another professing Christian, are these, are these things that we should, uh, you know, are these hills, that, is this a hill that we should die on? Is this, is this something that, uh, you know, it may, I don't know if it's a primary, you know, matter or if it's a secondary, but nonetheless, I think it's important. Right. If I understand the question correctly, in speaking with a Christian who may hold to an open theistic view, which means that, God kind of pulled the string on creation and stepped back and just kind of let it all happen without any intent or, or active control. Um, 
what is the best way to address that way of thinking? Is it a secondary issue? Uh, I would think the answer is no, it's not a secondary issue. We're dealing with the person of God. God has revealed himself to us in scripture so that we may know how he is for certain. And I think taking them to the texts that tell us that God is enthroned in heavens and is working his plan out on earth according to his good will, such as uh, Psalm 119, 89 uh, through 91, which we read, uh, and in many places in the Psalms where we find that God reigns from heaven, um, that, that he controls, you know, the, uh, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, you know, right? As the river turns, he turns the heart. Uh, these are things that show that God is, is actively in, actively Lord of creation and not just, just not just far away, um, leaving to chance or to human activity the outcome of all time and space. I think that the texts, sharpening yourself on understanding those texts, Isaiah or otherwise, would be, would be where we would take that Christian. Are you going to ask a question that's yours or Kyle's? I was just going to say that in dealing with that, too, and kind of navigating those waters, there's definitely a spectrum, you know. You've got, you're talking to a, a pastor that's preaching and teaching open theism. That's one thing. If you're talking to your next-door neighbor who goes to XYZ Baptist Church down the street, uh, most of the time you'll find that they have those blessed inconsistencies. Yeah. And so, you know, just not being quick to uh, lay the charge yeah. You're a heretic. That's open theism, right? <laughs> yeah. um, working with them because most of the time, they though they say that about this area, they're very inconsistent, and they say, "No, well, no, God knows these things, and God caused these things to happen." Mm -hmm. But it's like these areas they're uncomfortable with. You know, there's those inconsistencies. So just seeking to be patient uh, with our brothers and sisters who um, are having a tough time embracing that. A lot of times because of years and years of being inculcated with uh, that mentality from a pulpit somewhere. You know what I mean? That's and, a good point. Um, yeah. And God, in his mercy, he will open those eyes um, as, as uh, he has for us, you know, and being, to, being able to embrace uh, that God does decree all things whatsoever that come to pass. So just a thought. Amen. Thank you, Gary. Did I miss the second part of your question? Did you ask about comforting that Christian, like in the death of a child or something? No. Okay. No. Just, I well, mean, the, okay. They would, they would say, how could that be God's Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that we, we do have to be, we have to be ready, uh, as, as Gary says. We have to understand that those who do go to XYZ Bible, Baptist Church may be taking on years of instruction in that way, and they've just come to understand it by way of ignorance. They hold to that view. I think taking them to the text um, and asking the question, what, is, what does this seem to say about the Lord? And then be ready to maybe not say anything at all, but be a comfort in that situation. I think of Job's three wonderful comforters. Uh, we don't want to be like that. All right, whose question is this, Ken? <laughs> the question is, does God decree a thing because he knows it? Or does he know it because he decreed it? God knows it because he has decreed it. Did I pass? <laughs> Let me know when that one comes in. Regarding the earlier question, 
a couple things about comfort is just it is an astonishingly discomforting thing to think that God is not in control yeah. of the the horrible things that happen in our life. To think that God is standing by, either too weak to do anything about it or too distant to care. Mm-hmm. And those two things do not provide comfort. Mm-hmm. The, the many in the church want to say that they do, but those two things do not provide comfort. They provide radical instability, and those who cling to those as their hope are the same who walk away from the church five years later when the, the hardships keep on coming. Right. Because that will not carry us through the storms of life. That will not be an anchor for our souls. Amen. That is a, a drift, that's, a, that's a drift net that just pulls us along in whatever way the water's blowing. So it is not comforting to hold on to those things. I think one of the things that we run into with those who have those blessed inconsistencies is oftentimes we do come to a point where they say, I can't worship a God who does this. I can't worship a God who lets children die of cancer, right? And that's the thing where we do need to take them to the Scripture and say, here's what Scripture says about this. Scripture says it plainly, so you need to either refute the Scripture and show me how I'm misinterpreting this, or you need to confess that you do not believe in the God of the Bible, that you do not belong to him, and you do not have a hope in Christ. Mm-hmm. And then the call is for repentance and faith. Um, and those are essential, but you do so often come to those things where people have prejudgments in their hearts where they believe that they are the ultimate uh, arbiter of what is good and right and true. And if God's word contradicts it, they're going to go with their gut instead of the scripture. And that is something where we need to be willing to say to them, if you hold to that, you do not have Christ. Repent and believe. Amen. Thank you. What Aaron said. When we think of God, we, we must think of him in two ways, right? Both transcendent and eminent. He is both a God who is above our ways, far above the heavens, but he is also a God who is close to us. So the aspect of comforting, as Aaron said, comes in the fact that God is in control. He has decreed all things to happen. And sometimes the question uh, can be refrained back to the person is that why, if God, why does God allow any good thing to happen at all? Considering the knowledge of who we are, understanding and discerning the plight of man, why would God allow anything good to happen to any of us? Just don't ask that question while you're trying to comfort someone. Any other questions? No follow-up yet? (laughs) All right. Here's a question. So when you're um, just presenting the gospel, not to an, another Christian where you're discussing the deeper things of election and, and such, but just a simple gospel, how and at what point do you try to incorporate those deeper things of election and not leave that out because it's such an important thing and that person goes, you know, they're saved through, you know, because I think most of us were saved through an Arminian mm. gospel. I don't know if every, you know, not speaking for everybody, but I was, and most people I know that are saved were. And it wasn't until years later that I came to understand the doctrine, you know, a Reformed doctrine. So when, how and, and when is it the time to try to incorporate that in when you're witnessing to someone that doesn't know the gospel? You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I did that once, and I when I was trying to wrap my brain around election and I went way off that, you know, well, I don't know if you're 
elect by God or not, and I got way out there, and then it was like I couldn't dig myself out, and then I was like I totally messed that up. Oh, yeah. how, how does that? Is that, do you understand what I'm saying? I think so. I think the question, let me try and restate it back to you. Um, when presenting the gospel, is there a time that we do bring up uh, the idea of election? I think two things um, should guide how we share the gospel. Number one, that it is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul would go on to say in 1 Timothy 1.15, among which I am the chief. The reality of the gospel is when we're, present, when we're presenting it, we're presenting the gospel to sinners. Plain and simple. We, we don't try to wade through whether or not the person we're presenting it to is elect. When the person, if the person comes to the knowledge of Christ and there is uh, regeneration, those are the things that that person will then apply themselves to, the understandings of doctrine. As they begin to ask the question, and you probably did this just like I did, why me? Why save me? Why not my friend or my neighbor? Or That's, a, that's an internally personal question that works its way out in, in one's own doctrinal studies. And then um, be prepared to have that conversation with the person at that point. Elect, election in Christ, sh those two words should never be separated, even for Christians who are mature. When we talk about election... We should, always, we should always mention that we are elect in Christ. It reminds us that the gospel is the way in which we have come to know him. Um, election apart from Christ, or speaking, speaking of election apart from Christ, can sometime become, sometimes become a cold, distant doctrine. Um, it is because of Christ we are in him. It is because of him we are, we are saved. And so we want to remember that we are elect in Christ because of his work. Um, but I, I get it. I understand that. That can be kind of a sticky wicket when you're trying to share the gospel and teach something biblical at the same time. Um, know nothing but this, Christ crucified. <laughs> um, that, is the, that is the tenets of the gospel. and We, we want to stick to those tenets that, that certainly bring the salvation to the one who's hearing. Anybody else? Thank you for that. Just a, a follow up on that, I think Paul in Athens is very instructive that he, when he is presenting the gospel to pagans, he does not focus on God's decree of election, but he focuses on their responsibility. He says, uh, in former times God has overlooked sins, uh, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent and to trust in the Son. Um, and so that is our emphasis in... Uh, in evangelism is on their responsibility before God. God commands you to believe this message. God commands you to trust in Christ and requires you to repent. So you must listen, hear the word of Christ, believe it, and repent and turn to him as your only hope of salvation. And that is the gospel message. Calvinism is not the gospel. You know, the, the doctrines of grace do shape how we understand the gospel, but that's not the presentation of the gospel itself. The gospel is, indeed, that Christ died to save sinners. And you need to trust that and you need to believe it. You have an obligation before God. Now, if they come to a place where they're saying, I, I'm hearing you, I'm understanding, and it makes sense to me intellectually, but I, I don't believe it. Like, I don't know how to trust in that, right? Then that's the time where our understanding of soteriology comes into play. And we say, well, it's the Holy Spirit who grants that. So plead with the Holy Spirit to grant you faith, to cause you to trust what you believe you understand. You 
assent to intellectually, but you know you're not trusting yet, pray and ask God, and he will gladly give you the Spirit so that you would be able to trust in your heart. Um, and so that, that's where it comes in for me in evangelism, is when someone's saying, like, I get it, I understand it. And I can say, like, historically, I believe that's factually true, right? They're confessing basically the faith of demons thus far, is that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? I believe that happened, but I'm not, I don't know how to trust in that, right? We point them to Scripture, and we tell them to plead with God for help. And that's where our soteriology comes into play there. But it, uh, understanding the, the doctrine of election is, is something that should happen in the context of a local church as they've joined themselves to membership and are being discipled and taught the whole counsel of God's word. For me, I think the most mysterious and hardest thing to grasp from all of this is how God decrees that which is evil without himself being responsible for evil. And I think that's the hardest thing to defend uh, to those who seek to attack the doctrine um, is how God does that. But understanding the God's superintending of the already existing desires of the wicked is important. I think understanding and recognizing that God is constantly restraining the evil that would naturally flow from the hearts of every mankind, of every man, right? And when he removes that restraint and allows them to do the wickedness that they intended to do, according to his good purpose, he's not put the evil intention there. He simply removed his restraint from them. And when we think of great atrocities like the Holocaust, right, we think of great immense wickedness. It's not, God, God did not put that thought and that desire into any man. That desire was already there, and he finally removed his restraint so that it could be done. And I think that is a, a key in answering that objection, that, recognizing that if God were not presently, constantly restraining evil in the world, if, there were not, if this were not a world of common grace, then there would be far more wickedness going on, that all the evil intentions that God decrees for his good purpose are intentions that were already there that he may have previously restrained and now allows to, to bear their fruit. Yeah, we think, if you think of Acts 2.23, um, that through the evil intentions of men, they crucified Jesus. God didn't, have, God didn't work or, or have to entice them to do what they wanted to do. You remember the unfolding drama throughout the entire Gospels is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees sought at every turn how they would put him to death. That was, the, that was the desire of their hearts. They wanted to kill him. They had reasons for it, right? They were jealous of his power. They were threatened by who he was. They knew he was the Christ, but they were afraid that they would lose their power, prestige, and position, and they wanted to put him to death so that he would not lead the world astray. That was their desire to do that. But God had decreed that in a certain time that he would be put to death by the hands of wicked men. And though he is not the, the second cause of that, he is the first cause in, in decreeing that Christ would die for the saving of many. The second cause is the actions and desires of the wicked hearts of men that saw that to its end. That is a, an incredible thing to think that that we worship a God who is in control not just from the beginning, but in the intricate desires of the fallen hearts of men to work and to will what they want to happen and still provide a conclusion to God's decree. It is an amazing thing. It's, it's sometimes, as Aaron said, it's, it's difficult to defend, 
It can be difficult for us to, to articulate, um, but this is the God that we know we worship. And I think that should lead us to declare hearty hallelujahs uh, to his marvelous grace. Any other questions? I think just to piggyback off of what Aaron was saying is something that was a big realization to me was the opposing view would say something along the lines of God foreknew it, he has all power, but at the same time, if he knows it's going to happen and then refuses to do anything about it, that still has the problem of, well, he, he could have done something and he didn't. So what does that mean? So that, that was something that really helped me with the opposition of that. Thank you, David. Was that a question? Okay, good. <laughs> I had to replay your statement in my head to see if there was a question there somewhere. I think I came more easily to accept the sovereignty of God and, and things like that because of uh, hearing what the alternative was. Well, if God didn't decree these things, then yeah, why did these things happen? And just going, uh, yeah, dude, you had to look down the corridors of time, stuff like that. But if he had to do that, then he's not sovereign. He doesn't know everything. And just, just those pitfalls and stuff, I was like, that doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't make sense that you have a sovereign God that says, this is how it's going to go. And this is, yeah, this is what it's going to be. And then we just live that out. <laughs> yeah. Yes, alternatives just didn't make sense. Yeah, as we look at the first pages of the Bible, we find that God in his sovereign aseity, <laughs> created all things without a single word of input from me, speaks to his eternal and encompassing sovereignty. He needed no, nothing from us in creation. How we can read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and then walk away going, yeah, God's in control of some things. I just don't, I don't understand that myself. Um, not to say that it's, it, it's not thought about and, and people don't struggle with that, but but knowing that God is sovereign is knowing the God who presents himself from the scriptures. And I think that's, that's where we go to, to find that definition of the God that we worship. That's why it's so important that we look to confessions, though, though they, are, they serve at the behest of the scriptures, confessions do. You know, the scriptures are above them. Confessions affirm what the scriptures teach, and it's important for us to have, to have that before us so that we can see how our forefathers have articulated the things in which the scriptures tell us into succinct categories that we can easily discern and trace. It's very helpful. Oh, Amanda. <clears throat> I was just, and what you were talking about with the satiety of God, and it's just, this flows out of that, just that humbling feeling that this is our Father's world. He has purpose. I'll think, who am I to say that I don't deserve this? particular outcome in my life or that um, in such what have my thoughts been how how where's my wisdom see you know we we have no explanation we have no defense in our complaints against the Lord um, and I think also like what David was it's just uh, you think of the opposite what if, if if it were just up to chance, if God saw in the world and did not, that doesn't make him any more evil or lovable in our human mindset. But the fact is, he is the Lord and he is free to do what he 
all in our silly, foolish sinfulness, he has stooped down, and Christ bore our sins, and he has given us the right to become children, like, in our stupidity, you know, and in our sinfulness, so... A lot of um, just reasons to be humble, and to, it just shuts our mouth. A lot, of, like a lot of our complaints, it closes our mouth because we recognize that we are the creation; we're not the creator. Um, and to show us the uh, depths of His mercy and grace that we will one day get to glimpse at. So Amen. we look forward to that. Yeah, the comfort in the life of the believer is that God decreeing the end from the beginning means that everything in between is decreed. The consummation of the age is not left to happenstance. Your redemption does not depend upon all of the stars aligning correctly. There's no rolling of the dice, as it were, to determine the outcome of whether or not you make it to heaven or not. You can know for certain because God has decreed that certainty. Um, his decree is all-encompassing. All it grabs the Garden of Eden, and it connects it to the last sentence in the book of Revelation for us. Um, and that is a great comfort to the Christian. Anything else? I see Ken looking at his phone. Just the time? <laughs> All right. Gary, do you want to dismiss us in prayer, or is there a benediction? Is there a benediction and closing prayer? Is a benediction and closing prayer? Is there? A... Okay. <laughs> you want to dismiss us in prayer? All right. Father, as we go from this place, having this morning feasted upon the best of your stores from the treasury of your word, having our souls renewed and refreshed in the person and work of Jesus, coming to understand that in all things whatsoever that unfold in our lives, you have decreed them to be, and that we may find comfort in a Christ, a Christ who has come, he has emptied himself, and he has exalted. Um, to us should be the anthem charge and praise and song of every trial in our lives. That we know that Christ is exalted at your right hand, interceding for us. Let us hold fast to these truths as we go out into the world, as we serve you in our occupations and our vocations at home, as we interact with our neighbors, as we teach and encourage our children, as we speak with our spouses. Help us to remain focused upon Christ that we may show that good and acceptable and perfect will of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.